0: Yo, 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 yo! Welcome to episode number 38 of the Basketball Card Podcast. I am your host, Adam. You can find me at the Real 27 guy on Instagram, uh, or just simply as The27Guy in other places. Welcome again to the episode. I think this will be a good one today. I want to start out by saying, though, thank you for those of you who reached out to thank me after the last episode. The responses that I got to that one um, on consignment, on PWCC, Steen, 123 and ComC were really meaningful. I think that's been the most listened to episode so far, which is saying something because it's only been up for 10 days. And um, the number of PMs that I got and things. The thing that I'd encourage you to do is if you do like it, if you would uh, consider sharing that episode or other episodes via Instagram, or leaving um, a rating on uh, on iTunes, if you have thoughts on, how, on things that I could do better in the episode, I'd love to hear that. I'd love to hear any feedback. But please like it. Please rate it. Please share it. Thank you. Seriously, thank you for doing those things. I am very grateful for that. So please like it, please rate it, please share it. And if you do that, I'll love you forever. <laughs> How's that? Seriously though, I think this will be a good show today, and I think that I think you guys will like it. So today's episode is about Kobe. It's about what I have done to my collection over the course of the last couple of months, <laughs> which has changed pretty dramatically uh, since late January, and why why I've changed my collection. That's the main part of the show today, but after that, I'll do a segment of Beckett Bites. First off, let's talk about what I've done to my collection over the course of the last uh, three months or so. The first thing that you have to understand that that I've done is I've utilized some of those tools that I talked about last episode, and I've liquidated the parts of my collection that I have considered less essential. Um, I have moved some cards that I really didn't want to, but for the most part, I was able to move cards that were not the most important to me or or the most important parts of the collection as a whole. So, um, you know, things like, things that that were on the periphery, you know, if I I wanted to have a key card of a player and I had two key cards of them, I would move one of them. Um, If I wanted to have a, a, a specific set represented in my top 100 but I had two cards from that set, I would move one. That still left me though needing to um, get more money and so there are definitely cards that I had to move that I didn't want to. But in every case I figured the cards that my collection could afford most to lose, then I moved those. It's hard to explain how you how you qualify that but for me where I have a top 100 collection, there are certain cards that I feel more comfortable in moving because the the reason that that carve is important has representation still in my collection. For example, I had a couple of really nice high-end Yao Ming cards that I moved. I don't feel great that I had to move them, but I still have one really nice high-end Yao Ming card in my collection that's in my top 20 cards. That made me feel more comfortable about moving those other ones. Did I want to move them? No, but I felt like I could. And I moved all of this stuff so that I could acquire key Kobe Bryant cards. So what kind of cards? Well, I'll list off a few of them for you. I'll list off the majority of them. How's that? So I got the 1999 Finest Gold Refractor of Kobe Bryant, which is a BGS9 and is numbered 24 of 100. I got the 2004 Ultimate Premium Patches numbered to 75. That's the first year that they did those and generally the most... Um, popular, I got the 1999 SP Authentic Sign of the Times autograph, which is Kobe's first SPA autograph. I got his Chrome rookie and a BGS nine. The serial numbers, the serial number on the BGS slab is in the fifty thousands. It was graded in 1999, uh, which is which is a kind of cool thing. Um, I got the 2008 SP. I showed this off today. The 2008 SP Rookie Threads dual patch with a Michael Jordan. I got the two thousand and two SP game used dual auto with Michael Jordan in a Wizards uniform, numbered to twenty five. So those are some pretty serious cards. But then there's the more serious cards. And oh, by the way, there's one more card that I need to add to this list uh, this week. That'll come out later. That's kind of a tease, I know, but um, I don't want to I don't want to spoil it because I haven't actually gotten the card yet. So I don't want to mention it here. And today was the day to, to record. So apologies for the um, teasing of that. The Big four cards, though, that I have acquired are this 2000 Upper Deck Patch Autograph uh, from Series One. That's his very first autograph patch card. He has auto jerseys from the 90s. He does not have an autograph patch from the 90s. I believe mine, it's numbered eight, is the first one. Um, and it was graded back in 2002, which is really cool. The patch is as weak of a patch as you could ever want. It's just a simple white one color straight off the number patch but it is what it is it's a kobe patch autograph and it's the very first one numbered eight and graded a nine by bgs i got a 2004 sp authentic autograph patch numbered to 10 which is the one that was lost in the mail there for a little while and a nice three color patch strong card there i got the 2012 prism autograph silver number 25 That's a BGS-10, and that's the only BGS-10. It's an on-card autograph. They only did, I think, three autographs in PRISM that year that were on-card, as I mentioned uh, previously in the PRISM episode. I think the one that I couldn't think of was Blake Griffin, by the way. I think it was Durant, Kobe, and Blake Griffin were the four that they did. Um, I got Kobe. It's the silver version. It's just a glorious, refracting card. It's as pretty of a card as I have in my collection. Like I said, it's a pop one and um, I've been looking for that card for a couple of years, so I was glad to add it. had to pay a lot more for it than I would have back when I was first looking for it, but really glad to have added it. And then the biggest one that I added was, of course, the 2012 Prism Gold, numbered one of 10. Prism Gold is largely thought of as uh, the most important Panini set to be released to date, and that's the first year, and because it's one of 10, it's his first Prism Gold card ever made. The reason I tell you about all that it sounds like i'm just like hey look at all this cool stuff i got and yeah i'm pretty happy and proud of the things that i've acquired there but the reason that i want to explain what i got is so that you guys can understand this was a very deliberate very time intensive um, process of acquiring the things that i acquired i didn't just acquire all of the copy cards that are out there i really took my time with this and was very deliberate, very intentional about the cards that I did acquire. And I didn't take lightly that I had to move the things that I had to move to get those cards. So that tells you a little bit about what I have acquired. Not a little bit, the majority. I think I might have left out a couple of things that were less material, but those are the most significant cards that I that I added as part of the last few months. So here's the question that I want to ask you guys. Why have I done this (laughs) why have i taken the time and the effort and the money and all that stuff to really change my collection in a really crazy way over this last few months after all as one uh, instagram poster put it this this week he said i think it's very strange that somebody who's such a big utah jazz fan collects michael jordan and kobe bryant and I think he's right. I think it's strange, too. Um, the, two, the two players in my collection, by far, that have the largest market share are Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. Not in that order. Probably Michael Jordan first, and then Kobe Bryant. But Kobe's caught up quickly. I will say that. So why? Why have I done that? Well, the reasons are many and varied, and I'm going to talk about them over the course of the next few minutes. I don't think this will be our longest episode, but I've been looking forward to this one. I hope I do a good job of explaining kind of why I feel the way that I feel, why I've done what I've done. I know I'm gonna get done and feel like I left out some things that I wanted to say, but I'm gonna say the things that I kind of have have written in front of my spreadsheet right now that will prompt me to, to say certain things and think other things, and hopefully I cover most of it. But here is why I have been buying Kobe Bryant. It's a rare time when my head lines up with my heart. What does that mean? Well, Kobe, um, let me start with this. I hated watching Kobe Bryant play basketball. Kobe Bryant ripped the ripped our hearts out several years in a row. The entire Darren Williams, Carlos Boozer, Mehmet Okur era could be viewed very differently for Utah Jazz fans if... Kobe Bryant didn't exist we lost to the Lakers I believe three years in a row the three years that we had the best chance to to move on I guess we went to the conference I I say we like I'm on the team um we went to the conference finals one year where we didn't have to play the Lakers and then we had to play the Tim Duncan Spurs who were probably other the other worst matchup for the Jazz uh it was it was never a great matchup to play the Spurs but even worse than that was playing those Lakers teams. Those Lakers teams were so big, um, especially when you got Kobe Bryant at the two, you know, Powell and Bynum and Odom as a as a front line with Kobe at the two and stinking Derek Fisher out there just crushing our soul. Uh, that those Lakers teams killed us. I hated watching Kobe Bryant. I hated what I perceived as arrogance. Uh, similar feelings that I had for Jordan when I watched him. I just hated watching that guy beat us um and there were times where we felt like he was just so full of himself and like i said so arrogant so why would why would i feel like i should collect him now well despite the fact that i never enjoyed watching the lakers and i never um I, i've never liked lakers fans particularly although a couple of my best hobby friends are laker fans um, Lakers fans are just so it's just such a strong fan base. You know, no other team in the league has so many gold jerseys scattered throughout the crowd as Lakers as as the Lakers do. I just never never like gotten along with Lakers fans. Other than those good friends that I talked about. I mean, I, I guess let me let me take that last comment back. I just I've loathed them, right? There's probably some jealousy there, but there's also been some amazing rivalry there. The Lakers-Jazz rivalry started back in the late 80s, and the Jazz and Lakers had this amazing series where the Jazz were even supposed to be, be in it, and they, they pushed it to seven games, and the Lakers won it in the end. And that was really the beginning of Stockton and Malone being viewed as a serious um, group. The Jazz and Lakers didn't play very much in the playoffs then until the mid-'90s when the Jazz um, introduced Kobe Bryant to what real playoff basketball looked like, and he had those four air balls. I met Kobe at the, the hotel that he was staying at, at that point, uh, in Salt Lake with my buddy, Chad. Um, Chad runs the, um, Pack to the Future podcast now with, um, with another guy there. Uh, Chad, Chad and I went down and we met him. I told that story before we had our picture taken with him and the picture didn't end up being developed because it was the last, um, it was the last picture on the roll. Um, but I, I just, I watched him from the time he was a rookie airball those four times. Um, then we beat him the next year too. And then when we ended up playing him, you know, almost a decade later, a decade later, actually, when it was the Darren Williams, Carlos Boozer form of Utah jazz, the Lakers just smoked us and they prevented us from going further. So that's probably where some of that loathing comes from. But like I say, um, Although I didn't like watching the team, I respected the heck out of him because he just worked, right? He was one of the few guys who felt like he would play injured, obviously incredibly thoughtful, very smart, dedicated to his craft, played and played and played, played during seasons in the mid-2000s where he had no other help and just still just kept playing, unless he was too injured to play. You know, didn't rest like we see a lot of the guys do now, and just really gave it his all. You remember, you know, remember when he blew out his Achilles and he tried to go out there and keep playing. Memory serves, he he walked out there and he still hit his free throws, hoping to be able to come back into the game. Um, you know, we watched him. Unlike Jordan, we watched him be humbled in the public light. We saw him. Really go through some hard things. We watched him be human. We saw him as a punk kid coming into the league, demanding which team to go to. And we saw him move from that stage to shooting the air balls to Colorado to, you know, smush Parker days and um, playing with teammates that didn't care to then, you know, and before that, watching him win, winning championships with Shaquille O'Neal. Watching him win three in a row, um, one of the greatest teams of all time. Watching his pride along with Shaq's pride prevent them from winning more. And then, like I say, on to the days that were really bad after Shaq left or after Shaq was traded. And then to the days where after they got Pau Gasol and Andrew Bynum and they had Lamar Odom, where they were, where they were really good again. And... And, you know, through all that, he had the humility of that was brought upon him by Colorado and the experiences that he had there. We watched him grow up in a way that we haven't watched anyone else, right? I was 13 when he came into the league, and he played until I was in my 30s. And so we kind of grew up together. And I feel like a lot of us watched him and felt like we grew up together and um you know and by the end of his career i watched him again with the jazz ties i watched him score 60 on us in his last game in a meaningless game but do the most kobe thing ever which was just go out and just say this is it this is my last this is my last go he had that stupid farewell tour that just kept going and going i was like gosh is this thing ever going to end you know these are some of the reasons why um you know, watching him there at the end was so interesting, and then watching him become a storyteller, winning Oscars, and prioritizing being a father, reconciling with his wife despite almost incomprehensible incomprehensible difficulties. These are all things that that just are very. Um, it's just it's art. It's um, he he was more than a basketball player and he was more than a basketball player i think to a lot of us in that we we got to watch him in such a public light like i don't know if i've spent more time watching any other human on tv than kobe bryant i'm a jazz fan again that's weird right he was just so there in our face all the time for good and for bad and like i say we watched him grow up so those are some of my thoughts on kobe um, and why why he kind of i feel like has entered a lot of our hearts but i said at the beginning of this sort of soliloquy of it, um, that um that it's one of those rare times when my head lines up with my heart and i'll and, and i'll explain that why 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 where my head part comes in right now so um Kobe, when he passed away, um, something very interesting happened. And that is that, um, well, there's a lot of things that happened. So let me just back up and, and walk you through what has happened since January 26th, from my perspective. On January 6th, Kobe passed away, and most of us mourned in a way that I don't think most of us have mourned for, for um, an athlete before, or anybody besides maybe people that we know, um, or that know us, at least. And so when he when he passed away, it was this really weird kind of time for us. But while most of us were having this mourning time, there were people who were jumping on the internet and buying every Kobe Bryant card that they, that they could what happened in the days and weeks that followed was that most of those cards that were purchased on january 26th were returned or not paid for and so it set this strange situation up where if you looked at the ebay closing prices you wouldn't get a realistic price of what the card was worth and in most cases you weren't getting a realistic idea of what the car of what the card of what it was paid for or what what amount was paid for the card and so you didn't really know who was buying these or what the real value of these cards was and at that same time the media was reporting that record prices were being had for Kobe Bryant memorabilia and I think a lot of people logically thought wow this is a really unique chance, and I don't want to judge these people, but it seems like a lot of them thought, this is my moment to capitalize on my collection. I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to sell all these Kobe Bryant cards that I have. And you have people getting into their closets and finding their old, you know, dollar Kobe, everything from their dollar Kobe's to their auto Kobe's and Jersey Kobe's and insert Kobe's and just everything. Um, a lot of stuff that had very old serial numbers on the BGS slabs were sold. That was one thing that I really noticed. And you again, you can guess why. And people looking to remembering they have cards that were that were worth something. And I, again, I don't want to judge those people for that, but it did feel to me like a lot of people tried to capitalize on a moment that um, that that for a lot of us was 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 a weird kind of hard moment. And because a lot of people did that, the amount of Kobe cards that were out there of all kinds, low end, high end, and everything in between, a lot of them were just out there all of a sudden. And none of us had planned for this moment of course you can't plan for a moment like this and no one's ready for it so you've got people who are like buying everything left and right when they come out realizing that they're not worth what they were paying or winning them for then not paying for auctions and then you have people who are like do i want to buy do i want to sell what's going to happen and then a lot of us that are just like wow this is so sad and during this time um, of sadness um, and it really it really affected me it affected me for a couple of weeks far more than I would have guessed far more But during that time I also thought okay. What what do I want to do here? I had a couple of big kobe cards already I had um, uh, The noir auto logo man tag I had the 2004 um, Limited logos from exquisite, which is a huge card. It's, one, it's always been one of my best cards I had the Quad Auto with LeBron and um, Jordan and Garnett at Ultimate. Um, and I had a couple of big eminence cards, too, and a couple of others, actually. So I, had, I already had a lot of nice Kobe stuff to be part of my collection. But during those couple of weeks, I was thinking, what else do I want to add? Uh, what, what else would be important to me to have part of my collection? And then when I realized that people were just listing cards left and right, it kind of dawned on me. That this was a time that was going to be very, that was never to be re- replicated. It was a very, not just for Kobe, but maybe for almost any athlete. A time where the market is entirely saturated and there's not enough people who are out there actively buying and there's not enough money out there um, that's been allocated for, for, for this. And so, I said I want to now find certain cards to be able to buy well I'd already been looking at the 2012 gold prism that was out there so I figured out a way to secure that and all the other cards then that I listed off earlier in this episode over the course of the last few months and again I did that because um, I wanted the cards for two reasons straight up honestly I wanted the cards And because I felt like they were in, they they that we were in this incredible moment where some of these things are available that are no longer going to be available, and it might not happen overnight. It may take a few years, but you know, I went and I looked, I listened back to a lot of Kobe's motivational speeches and, and things that he's given since his career has been over. He was so unique, guys, and he's so beloved by you know the most the most insane fan base in that i know of in professional sports um, and, and that extends here to salt lake obviously friends that i have that just absolutely love that guy um, he signed a ton of stuff you know not, not only has he signed a ton, ton of stuff but his career has spanned from before the serial number craze through the inserts of the late nineties and the the serial numbered inserts and parallels of the late nineties through the beginning of game used cards and um, the rise of autographs into the exquisite era, era, um, which, you know, as an active player during the exquisite era, he just has incredible stuff from that era, all the way through to the end of upper deck and tops as basketball card producers. Into the Panini era, with national treasures and flawless and um, immaculate, and a ton of wonderful autographs and jerseys and some autographs that aren't even aren't even that expensive. Um, all the way till the end of his career, and some of the really high end stuff that came out around that time and low end stuff too, right Th- through all the and through all the prism and all of the optic and all of these stages through till today. Um, and he was still signing cards and still had cards post career too. He has spanned such a long time and what that is, what that does is some, is some very interesting things It provides us with a lot of options as far as what we want to be able to buy and what we want to be able to collect. And that I would argue is a really good thing. It's good to have different options, but, um, it also um, begs the question, and this is a question that I've asked a lot over the course of the last few months, and that is what Kobe cards matter? It's more than just what cards are iconic, it's what cards matter. And the great part about that, and I will say this forever buy what you like buy the things that matter to you it doesn't matter if somebody else thinks it's iconic it doesn't matter if i say that it matters but from from the perspective of somebody who wants to both buy things that i like and make investments that are smart it's an important question to to ask especially with a case so unique as kobe You've got $100 autographs out there. At least you did. You've got $10,000 autographs out there. Where? What? How do you differentiate? How do you decide what matters? Is it just a matter of simple rarity? Is it just a matter of people trying to follow other people? It's hard to know. But for me, the question was, you know, what cards really matter? And that's why... I bought all those cards that I did, as well as a bunch more that I didn't name because I was seeking to find the cards that actually matter. Um, To some people, what matters begins and ends with the rookie year. And I understand that. That's the way I thought for a lot of my collecting career. Um, The reason that I don't feel like that's the case with Kobe is that most of his rookie stuff is not interesting from a rarity perspective some people in the hobby today feel like rarity that is created based off of a grade is the way to go and i understand that and i have lived that world for a long time but it just doesn't appeal to me anymore guys i've said this on on other episodes it's not that i'm anti the grading system but when a card is worth a ton more just because it is a 10 that doesn't appeal Like i just it just doesn't matter to me um it's nice when a card is perfect but i would much prefer a card that was rare because of what it is and the best situation is when you can find a card that is both rare and not just totally oddball the good example of that one for me is that upper deck patch auto that i was talking about that i bought that card was out of mainstream upper, mainstream upper deck. And it was their first ever autograph patches that they had released. It wasn't even its own set. The autograph patches out of that were actually just included in the checklist on, uh, with the, with the other patches. So patches were one in 2,500 packs. And there were four cards in, in the, within that, that were also autographed. There was Kobe to eight, KG to 21, Peyton to 20, and Jordan to 23. And that was it. What is that? like 50 autographs or something 50 autograph patches or 50 original autograph patches or maybe sorry i guess 23 21 it's like 70. like that's to me that's really awesome anyway i will i'll stop talking about my cards <laughs> um i i like it when a card is both in from a mainstream product like that and also ultra rare to me, that matters far, far more than a card that is graded high amongst all these other cards that are graded high. Having said that, there are cards that are very rare that are also, um, that also can be highly graded. And I do look at that. I look at that a little bit differently. So, you know, if you have a, a Fleer Ultra card that goes from being a $10 card to being a $2,000 card because of grade. That doesn't appeal to me but if you have a Topps chrome refractor that goes from being you know an eight thousand dollar card to a forty thousand dollar card that does have appeal to me that to me feels different um and it would appeal to me out but here's the thing is it would appeal to me as an eight thousand dollar card too not just as a forty thousand dollar card um hopefully that hopefully that makes some sense so so the rookie card back to my my point about the rookies he only has a few cards from his rookie year that, that do appeal to me and those are easy to figure out um, cards like the Chrome Refractor, the Finest Refractor, the Showcase Rose Zero, um, Legacy, number 150, the Bowman's Best Atomic Refractor, um, I actually like the SPX Gold, I think that's cool. I haven't, ca- I haven't picked up any of these, by the way, because it hasn't been where I've wanted to. Um, it- those are probably some of the big winners. Those of you who've been buying those over the course of the last couple months are probably, I would argue, probably gonna be the ones that make the most money out of this, but my goal hasn't been to make the most money. My goal has been to buy the cards that I really wanted most, and there's only so much money to go around. So I've bought the stuff that I really wanted, um, which is harder to find. Again, probably will appreciate less, but I don't care as much about the appreciation as I do about getting the cards that are really just gonna be impossible to find again like that upper deck patch i just i will never have another chance at one of those that acquiring that card is just like baffling to me Um, um and i think that i do think on that one that the market is undervaluing it but having said that i don't really know what the market values it at i just know you know what i was able to acquire acquire it for so um so anyway back to my my point the rookie year there's only a few Starting in 97, you get more interesting options because 97 and 98 are where the beginning of serial numbered inserts and parallels began. And there's a lot of things from those years that are actually undervalued still too, but you have to open your eyes and look through the Beckett and try to figure out what is really cool, but yet not too expensive. Then you get into the late 90s and the early 2000s, and there's so many cool things Upper Deck did, um, and uh, the, the, like the early jerseys and the early patches. And it Tops did some of the early autographs and Deck did some of the early autographs with Kobe too. And you can see how his autograph changed through the years, the way that his K loops is really cool on some of those old ones. Um, so so those, are, those are some of the things that, that, that I've looked at and that I think are interesting. I do think that lots of cards through, the, through these years matter, and it's kind of hard to quantify what matters and what doesn't but it's it's not as simple as looking at like jordan and saying what mattered for jordan that's what's going to matter for kobe a perfect example this is um the precious metal gems at the universe metal universe championships set um the kobe in that set is a great card because it is it is you know from such an important set but i would argue that how do i say this the kobe in that set isn't as good as um as a lot of cards are when compared to jordan the reason is because the the pose on the kobe is not as good now having said that if you look at the if you look at the pmg reds i think the pmg red of kobe is just one of the prettiest cards out there ever i don't have that i have no reason to tell you that other than that i would like to acquire one <laughs> i would really like to acquire that card um but it's one of the prettiest cards out there and i actually like how it looks more than i like how the jordan looks i i can poke a few holes in in the jordan uh, i won't i won't because it's you know one of the most important cards of the last few years the green version sold for a record high and i know how much other people love that card but the, but the pose of the kobe's really cool guys and um so i would say that where you'd like to just come up with a simple multiplier between the jordan jordan and kobe you can do that as a general rule but some sets are going to be more and some sets are going to be less and a lot of that i think is actually just based on something as simple as the pose at least to me that's the case you know maybe that's not the whole market i think the long term in the long term what a card actually look like looks like matters i think people want to use data and try to just figure out, oh, maybe this is worth this because that's worth that. And they use comps and multiples and I'm very comfortable with knowing how to do that. But I think in the long term, when people look back at what mattered for Kobe, it's looking at the whole card. It's looking at the card's place in the history of card collecting. You know, It's looking at the rarity and um, the, the, how collectible the set is and what the historical significance of the card is. And so as you look at the cards of kobe that are out there now um, if you've made it this far in the episode that's probably something you're considering doing what i would suggest first i would suggest suggest not listening to anything i said about the cards that i bought because um, those are what i like and you need to figure out what you like so don't think about what i what i what i'm buying but do ask yourself these questions what cards do you like the look of what cards do you think have historical significance that the, that the market hasn't recognized yet? And, you know, what, what are you willing to pay? And if you do those things, I think you probably end up in a pretty good spot. Probably a far better spot than just like listening to the things that I'm saying or listening to what anyone else is saying. There's lots of people out there who are giving quote-unquote investment advice. And um, there's a lot of self-fulfilling prophecies out there on a lot of those things. Um, i would not i would not suggest you listen to others on those things although you'll get serious FOMO for sure (laughs) um, when they're right Um, i would suggest figuring out what you like and figuring out what things you think matter and going out and buying those and as you do that um, i still think there's plenty of time to buy lots of Kobe's that are that are undervalued and build a really wonderful collection but i think that that if you don't do that, I think if you if you think well I'll just do it a few years down the line, I am of the opinion that that's a mistake, because I don't think the years are going to be kind to those people who are waiting to buy his stuff. I think you've got a whole army of Laker fans that are never going to forget that guy, and there will be there will always be Kobe cards to acquire, but I think the cards that really matter. And I, I do think that the, the the community at large will come up with some that really matter. Some of them are probably cards they own and some of them probably aren't. I think that once that time goes by or once that time has passed, it's not going to be pretty to try to acquire some of those things. That's my belief and I could be wrong. That's what I think though. And that's one of the reasons, like I say that my, that my head kind of lines up with my heart on buying Kobe. Let's move to the Beckett Bites portion of this episode. I'm going to review the June 1998 Beckett uh, Basketball Monthly, which features Antoine Walker on the front, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on the back, and a sticker from 1986-87 Fleer also on the back. This uh, episode, or this episode, sorry, this issue says first pricing 1997-98 metal universe championship has a stefan marbury piece of artwork on the front cover i wonder who who made these if you just had people right um people who drew them who, who submitted them it's kind of cool um, there is on page six a story about uh, Sean Kemp, Super Collector. And then on page eight, we've got my first thing that I wanted to highlight, which is two product previews. Um, and <laughs> they're two of the most, more important product previews um, for people who might be listening to this show. So I'm going to read those to you. The first one is Flair Showcase. Um, it, it says the stake 320 card basic set. So it refers to the all, that's referring to all three parallels as, or all three levels, row, or, row, all four rows. Sorry, row zero, one, two, and three. All is the base set. The release is in mid-May. The gravy is wave of the future features uh, top rookies, twelve cards, one in twenty packs, and the sizzle. The Legacy Collection parallels return, each number to hundred this year. Only one of each Legacy Master or Masterpiece Collection card has been produced. $3.99 SRP for a four-card pack. The potential. This is where the paragraph comes in. The 1986-97 version was a big hit with collectors. No doubt this set now expanded to include a fourth level entitled Showcase is set up to repeat that success. The key may be in how quickly collection collect, collectors decode the varying production quantities for each version of each player. I think that tr- turned out not to be true. I remember the different Levels had um, different rates of how important or how um, available they were. I think that information is largely lost to us at this point. Um, but if you go back there, within each level, there was varying varying amounts of how available they are or how available they were um, for 1997, 88, ex 2001. Uh, there's also a product preview. And that's the one that I was more interested in. It says the Steak, 80-card basic set. Uh, The Gravy, Stardate 2001, 15 cards, 1 in 12 packs. Features youngsters headed for stardom. Gravity Denied, 20 cards, 1 in 24. Is a cool two-piece die-cut set, highlighting the guys who play above the rim. And Jambalaya, 15 cards, 1 in 720. Is a super tough, slam-oriented set. So that's the gravy. The sizzle, Autographics cards. 50 cards, 1 in 60 packs. Along with Century Mark, Serial Numbered Parallels. Speaking of parallels, the big draw will be the Essential Credentials Now. The Essential Credentials Future Sets. With scarcity of each determined by the player's card number. Each player will have anywhere from 1 to 80 copies of each parallel. With the total number of each determined by where they are in the set. For example grant hill card number one in the set has just one card one now card and 80 future cards while ron mercer has 80 now cards and just one future cards yes it is confusing and 22 years later there's still people who are confused by it the ticket 399 srp for a two card pack the potential the base cards are sharp uh, which is reason enough to purchase these packs but if people can figure out this reverse numbering essential credentials thing this could be a big winner, and it was. It was one of the more important sets of the '90s for sure, and one that I think most of us remember really well. Uh, the questions this week in readers, or in this episode, or in this issue on readers' right, weren't super interesting. There's a cool article though about comparing buying people like Kobe Bryant compared to buying people like Tim Duncan, and one of the guy's arguing why you should buy guys like Kobe, and specifically. Kobe is viewed as the high schooler who's a um, who wasn't a surefire guy, and Tim Duncan, who is who was a surefire guy. What's interesting about this is, although this was written in 1998, um, at the tail end of Duncan's rookie year, you know you're you're talking about two of the ten greatest players of all time. So it's kind of a it's kind of fun to back at it like that. That's one of the fun things about Beckett's is you can see you know people have these different feelings about who would be great. And, who wouldn't and, um, <laughs> sometimes they're just so wrong uh, I wanted to look at the 97-98 Metal universe championship because it was their first pricing so I want to see what they came up with um, actually but first on that there was something that I thought was kind of cool I think I mentioned something briefly about this last Becky Bytes but I just can't get over how Kobe Bryant's rookie is in Topps Chrome is valued at four hundred dollars, but his refractor was viewed at a thousand. That never made any sense, like anything close to sense. Kobe's Chrome refractor was always far, far, far rarer, and it should have always been worth way more than two and a half times what the rookie was. At that, at this moment, you should have been able to realize that either Kobe's rookie was overvalued, Kobe's refractor was undervalued, or both and that this principle is still true today in the hobby you still see it with some of the prisms and prism silvers I, I personally see some of the way that or the way that some of these regular prism and optic rookies are valued and i just shake my head looking at the population reports because the those values just can't stand the test of time um as evidenced by the fact that Kobe's Chrome rookie in here, as of a couple months ago, was basically the same price. Whereas his refractor is just worth so much more because it's such a rare card. It should have never been two and a half X. That multiple never, ever made sense, guys. It just, it never did. Okay, so then let's get to the 97-98 Metal Universe Championship. Base set was worth 25 bucks. <laughs> it's, a, it's a deal. Um, PMGs uh, Commons were worth thirty. Semi stars were worth forty. Apparently, you get a Shaquille O'Neal for two hundred and fifty bucks and a Michael Jordan for twelve hundred dollars. That I think most people, or at least a good number of people, believe is the best card in my collection. It is worth more than twelve hundred dollars, slightly. The PMG green was worth eight grand. That's cool. Some people who want to go back in time on that one. Including me, and then why did I fold this page over? Oh yeah, this is cool because it had the who the who's hot players and sets and things. Um, the on the who who's hot or on the what's hot sets. And it's funny. Number one was Ultra Series One. Then you've got Tops Chrome Upper Deck Game Jerseys Finest Bronze um, from ninety seven ninety eight. Number seven on the list was. Metal Universe Precious Metal Gems and um, Yeah. Cosigners, just all the stuff that you that you would maybe think would be. And then randomly, number 15 was the 9495 finest set. So that's cool. Uh, the last thing that I want to highlight from this issue is the what's hot singles. And I want to take you from the number 15 hottest single to the number one hottest single. And there's some fun things in here. The number 15 hottest single was the 93-94 finest Ben Baker rookie card. Oops. Number 14, Skybox EX-2000 Kobe Bryant rookie. Number 13, 96-97 finest Kobe Bryant rookie. Number 12, Topps Chrome Antoine Walker rookie. Number 11, Ultra Ron Mercer rookie. 10, the 97-98 Skybox Star Rubies Michael Jordan. That card of all these has totally stood out so far. Oh, but you're going to hear a few more that are going to make sense. Number nine, tops Chrome Ray Allen Rookie. Number eight, Finest Tim Duncan Rookie. Number seven, Metal Precious Metal Gem Green. Michael Jordan, number 23. It's so funny to see these cards compared against each other. Cards that were so readily available with cards that would have obviously been next impossible to find in 1998. Number six, tops Chrome Refractor Kobe Bryant number five tops chrome regular Kobe Bryant number four ultra fan horn Rookie Fanhorn <laughs> rookie number three upper deck game Jersey Michael Jordan uh, number two upper deck game Jersey Michael Jordan autograph and number one the number one hottest single was the Tim Duncan ultra rookie so guys the thing that this high, that this highlights that this list highlights that I think is such an important and valuable lesson is that um, sometimes the latest greatest uh, and the hottest thing that's out there isn't some isn't something that is sustainable it's something that will be a hit for a while and it will be a fad and it will end in my 32 years in the hobby i have seen a lot of fads and I'm not going to tell you that I'm good at identifying all of them because there's things that you think will stick that don't and vice versa. There's things that really do stick that you don't think will. It's hard to predict. Um, but on a, in a coming episode, one of the things I'm going to talk about is how, um, how people want people kind of want to convert you to their idea of collecting. My first time I had somebody who tried to cl- convert me to um, how they collected was when I was about 12 years old and i'd love to share that story with you the same thing is happening today buy what you like figure out what you want to own and if if all you're doing is the investing thing i think that's okay um but i think you're missing something i think the much more gratifying part of the hobby is the building the relationships the chases the stories that come along with the building of the relationships and the chases. And um, that's what I would encourage you to focus on. That's what I'm trying to focus on more in my collecting. It's not always about getting the best. It's not always about having the very best collection. It's about some of those other things too. And you might say, well, it's, it's easy for you to say that, Adam. You've got this card or that card or whatever. Yeah, I know, whatever. I've been doing this for a long time and it took me a long time to get my collection where I want it to be, and I'm proud of it, and I like, I like the way that it is. Um, but far more important than the cards is the, like I said, is the relationships that are built and um, treating the hobby the way that it needs to be treated. It's kind of like the world. You kind of want to let, leave it better than, than how you found it. So I encourage you today as I, as I leave you here to try to leave the hobby and the marketplace better than you found it. Try to be a little bit kinder and um, yeah just look to make the world better Um, and on that note and until next time happy collecting